Welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Welcome, everyone, to yet another episode of the Future of Application Security. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Tim Brown, the Vice President of Security at SolarWinds, with decades of experience in security in general, and has been very, very forward-thinking security leader over the past several years now. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Sound old, having decades of experience. <laughs> yeah, you started early. <laughs> That's it. I did start when I was 12. That's right. Uh, Tim, before we go too far down the line, maybe shine a light on what has your long security experience looked like over a period of the past several years? What do you do now? And how did you end up in this current position? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been around for a long time. I started out as an engineer building solutions then an architect and a distinguished engineer, you know, designing solutions, mostly in the security space. So I cut my teeth really at Symantec for about 12 years, you know, acquired, I don't know, 30 products. You know, really CTO office back then was, you know, myself and, you know, one other, Rob Clyde. And we really ran the team. I focused on internal and architecture and strategy and really building out, making sure that our products were secure in that way. Then, you know, off to a startup for a little while, off to you know, CA, where I was CTO for the security unit for them. So identity and access management, a number of different solutions that we had. Then the startup for a little while again, then over to Dell Software. So I was one of six Dell fellows. Uh, that's the highest level of technical achievement for Dell. So I was one of six of those. Again, distinguished engineer there, focused again on security solution and really focused on what we were bringing to market and helping to make sure that we you know, met market needs, those types of things. So I'd spent about 20 years telling CISOs kind of what to do and how to manage and those types of things. And I really wanted to get operational experience. Uh, I really did want to understand and you know, really sit in the shoes that they're sitting in. So when I took on, you know, had a security role for Soloin, that's one of the things I wanted. I wanted both product security as well as operational security and started that about five years ago and didn't expect to have it land where it did, right? So I was running security before our incident, running security during, running security after the incident. And in that process, I took the role of the CISO on just to be official that I was head of security for the corporation. So that's kind of my journey through life in a few minutes. Yeah, that's a very distinguished career with some of the very, very well-known companies for sure. Now, at SolarWinds, there's some understanding of what SolarWinds actually does, but I think SolarWinds actually does a lot more. It's a very complex company, a lot of different products. It'll be helpful to the audience if you can help understand like the wide variety of things that SolarWinds yeah. does. First off, we don't do solar and we don't do wind. 
So we are not a power company. That's the first thing everybody thinks. So uh, cheers, we've been doing IT solutions for a number of things, solutions for your IT groups, really the IT practitioner. So network management, we've been number one from IDC for a number of years. So if you want to manage your network, if you want to know what every switch and router looks at your 7-Eleven, if you want to look at how your environment is structured across the world, it's complex environments, many different nodes. If you want to see if something is slow, something is performant or not, that's, you know, the SolarWinds Orion platform is really the go-to platform for many. So along with Orion, we have database tools, we have service management tools, we have logging, we have security tools and SIMs of our own. So right now around 40 or 45, 50 products or so, then a lot of free tools that many people around communities list. So we count somewhere around 200 to 300,000 customers of all of our solutions. So we are in 500, the Fortune 500, just been there with some of our products, Kingdom, Paper Trail, solutions that people just use kind of every day in their normal everyday life. So SolarWinds has a lot of great products, all focused on really simple, powerful, secure solutions. And that's really the model that we go to work with, that we're providing solutions that people can install, that people can manage on their own, that they can run and get value out of. Uh, And that's what we've been doing for many, many, many years. Right. I know early in my career, I used to work quite a bit with SolarWinds Orion and Pingdom uh, more recently. So very, very commonplace tools, even though they might not be 100% security focused, but quite a few of them are very common. Right. And they they come from, you know, as I always say, a well-managed environment is a secure environment. You want to manage it well, you need to monitor it, you need to manage it. And that's where our solutions really come in. Right, right. And I'm guessing across those two, 300,000 customers, there's a variety of them, including Fortune 500s, government, all kinds of different enterprises uh, as well, part of that. Yep. Right? Absolutely. Everyone across the globe. Because again, some of the tools are just, you know, engineering tool set. You just download it and use it. So they're counted as one of those customers. Um, yeah. Now, Pingdom, Paper Trail, Logly, all of those have huge numbers of customers. And then the Orion base is big itself as well. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the complexity that you might have considering you have several tens of products, right? Uh, I believe you mentioned. And considering the different types of customers that might be using them, some open source, some enterprise. How do you think about like, you know, how to allocate security resources or how do you prioritize uh, with the limited, you know, resources that you might have available? Yeah. So there's a different set, right? So our SaaS product, you know, we're hosting them, we're running them. So with those products, we have sort of different responsibilities, right? For those products, since we're running them ourselves, we can put mitigations in front of things. We can put WAFs in places. We can put other things that are protection of that structure and that environment. So that has its own kind of complexities of what we do. But we're building the products on the back end. So we have common software development life cycles. We have common models of how we develop code across the company, whether it's on-premise or SaaS. So those things help us from a scale perspective. On-premise, we don't necessarily control the environment that you install to. So we're a component that in general runs on a Windows operating system, sometimes in other operating systems. But it's a partnership between the customer that's installing and ourselves to make sure that we 
have that they've installed correctly, that they've installed with the right controls in place, because we don't have control of their environment, right? SaaS version, we have control of the environment. We can make sure that that is you know, in the right place. The on-prem, we have to make sure the customer, help the customers that they deploy correctly and appropriately. Right. So it's definitely different sets of responsibilities and ownership. Do you have a separate team, I guess, or separate set of resources to take care of the SaaS structure since it needs different layers of security? Yeah, as you would imagine, right, we have, you know, an SRE team, right, that manages the running of our SaaS product. So common model for all of the products from an engineering perspective, from how we record a, yeah, if you have a bug, you put it into JIRA, right? Any bugs that are security related, get a security tag. That security item gets a CBSS score. And my team monitors those, those of any medium critical high or high critical issue, making sure they get worked on appropriately. So whether that issue came from an external bug bounty, whether it came from an internal person, whether it came from one of the tools that we run, follows through that same kind of process. We have a raft process for things that we're going to accept risk on. Yeah. So from the product development side, very common for what we do from a engineering practice and, and policy and kind of model. What is different is that the SRE teams is really the one responsible for running the SaaS service itself, right? Now, for them, it is different from what we do there, how we kind of manage that solution, right? So that's where really where it separates, right? So yeah. we have two other things like SOC 2s for our you know, SaaS products and yeah, external pen testing because they're outside. We do external pen testing for internal, but the external ones can hit the outside, you know, directly. So those right. type of things happen. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think uh, one of the things that caught my attention in what you were saying a little bit earlier is that a well-managed environment is a secure environment. And a lot of the the topics that we just talked about are related to engineering processes, right? So SRE has a certain process or engineering has a certain process. What's your perspective on the dependence of security maturity on engineering maturity, engineering process maturity or development process maturity in general, what's your perspective? Yeah, I think shift left is a little bit of a <laughs> overused term right now. But in reality, when we want to move security closer to where things are getting defined, right? When we want to make sure there's a level of maturity across the board, you know, shift and left is important. When we look at requirements, so those requirements defined appropriately and those the actions that we're doing appropriately uh, managed. When we're doing peer reviews, are we just reviewing that the code is good or are we reviewing whether the code has introduced security issues, right? When we do those types of things, just as part of our processes, we're always looking to strive to, you know, really not just, you know, fix something, but really improve as we go along. So I think the maturity there is, is important. And, you know, one of the things that we see is that the maturity of IT organizations, some of those best lessons of an IT org need to move over into DevOps as well and sec DevOps. So they're not necessarily completely separate, even though some folks believe that they are separate. Oh, those IT guys have been doing stuff for 20 years and been doing it all wrong, right? That's not true. There's a lot of maturity in the processes of how you manage a firewall, right? 
And what I've been looking at and working with is to take those great practices from managing a firewall and your normal IT functions and moving them over into SRE, not slowing stuff down, but just having those appropriate practices that you should have. And, you know, a lot of smaller companies just don't grow up with that level of maturity. So they don't necessarily have that, you know, knowledge to start with. Right. Yeah. And I think it becomes a little bit challenging, especially in a modern DevOps type environment where it's high frequency, high concurrency of things going on in parallel. So yeah. while the practices might make sense, it's just hard to implement them because of the scale of the automation and things like that around that, right? There's a different set of challenges. Sometimes it's an excuse. <laughs> Tell sometimes, me more about that. Sometimes it's laziness, right? Sometimes it's not, well, I just rather not get a peer review. Oh, because it slows me down. I can't do that. I can't have somebody look at my code. Right. Or I have to always I, I have to be a privileged account all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, really? You're acting as root. We haven't acted as root for years and years and years. What do you mean you need to be root all the time? So things like that are sometimes it's simply because when you're a company of two people, you were doing those things. But guess what? There's maturity that can be learned. Right. And, you know, that's one of the things that we've instituted across the board is that same level of maturity that we have in IT. And it doesn't slow things down to have a secure model, right? And SOC 2 helps you get to some of those mature models. So as long as you're not gaming those systems of SOC 2, you know, why not have a Dash Admin account and, and, you know, a separate root account? Why do you have to be root all the time, right? Don't be silly, right? Right, right. Uh, the right practice to do, right? Change control. Make sure you have appropriate change control. Make sure it's audited. Make sure that those changes and the approvals are going into a record that you can go back to and understand. You know, rollback for changes, making sure that you can do those. Those are just normal, common, best practices that should be done for, you know, all organizations, whether it's a SaaS, running a SaaS service, or whether it's an on-premise product or whether it's your IT department. So I guess don't lose the, met, the the good processes and procedures that, you know, your IT org has. You know, don't forget about those, right? It's right. Still, they, they are still applying and they're not that hard to do all the time. Yeah, they just might have to be modified to fit in a different world. That's it, right? Yeah. Uh, so, change uh, review is a pull request review now, right? It's right. Uh, the same thing. Absolutely. So just change them up a little bit, but still the... the Models still are appropriate. Right, right. So switching gears a little bit, tell me more a little bit about, you know, what was the breach in 2020 like for you and your team specifically? Yeah, so December 12th, Saturday, uh, you know, 2020 is when it kind of started. We got informed by uh, FireEye Mandiant that we had shipped tainted code in the Orion platform. So started up an investigation real fast learned quite a bit real quickly because we didn't need to investigate whether it was true because we could essentially we're presented with the compiled source right that said hey this isn't your code and what we're able to tell was that you know three builds were affected essentially march to june builds that we did we knew it wasn't in our source code control system that's why it got termed a supply chain issue right and the broader supply chain issue really came out a little bit later 
But like on day one, it was, yeah, this is a supply chain issue. It's not in our source code. It's somewhere in our build system. We don't know exactly how it got there yet on day one, but we knew that, right? We knew which builds were affected. You know, the whole fast forward attributed to Russian SVR, a very, very specific targeted attack against SolarWinds, very quiet, very stealthy. They compromised email O365 first, did reconnaissance through there, uh, then came back, compromised an account, were able to ship a no-line set of code into the product that was built in October. So not infected, but you know, it basically had a no-op that they could see that it worked. Then they went away, came back in, in February for March through June builds and uh, put code in. So very, very quiet, very well thought out, very mission centric attack, you know, attacking the build system, right? And a transient virtual machine as part of that build system. Yeah, just a, a very smart move to not get detected. So inside of us, they were stealthy. And then the code that they dropped, again, stealthy in what they did, didn't start for 14 days whitelisted or blacklisted, you know, things like solo ones wouldn't run any, any of our domains, any of our test domains, anything like that. Wouldn't run a number of domains, attempted to shut off antivirus. So all about the attack was how do I not get detected, right? How can I get out there and not get detected? Now, what we originally said was that 18,000 customers were affected. Now, later on, what we discovered was under 100 went to a stage two uh, that actually tried to talk to the command and control server, successfully talk to the command and control server. So belief now is that it was targeting a few major entities, mostly government entities was the end target. And we were really a route to that target. Everything around the code suggests that it wasn't meant to do harm. It was meant to simply provide administrative access to the Windows server that was running Orion. And from there, they could move laterally or attempt to move laterally with the environment. But it had to be connected to the internet, which is not something normally you do with an Orion box. So normally you control what you have from a connection perspective. So therefore, you know, a lot of customers were not affected. But it did really affect everybody, right? Ruined our Christmas, ruined many people's Christmas across the board, and really had everybody investigating, hey, were you, you know, affected or not? So first few weeks, you know, kind of pure hell, 17, 18 hour days, at least more than that. Yeah, now I'd say more than that, probably more like 20 hour days. And simply because you had so many things that were happening. So believe it or not, countries call you. So yes, countries can call. And we had countries, we had all the major governments of the world calling. We had special initiatives that were going on in each one of those regions. You know, people were worried about Project Warp Speed. I think it was Warp Speed. That was the development of the COVID vaccine for any of those companies involved. CISA, a great partner throughout this, really helped us, their mission really to amplify the truth. Brought CrowdStrike in as a threat hunt partner great threat hub partner, not really developers. So we brought in KPMG's forensic team to help us on the development side. Really focused on understanding what the environment looked like, really getting to root cause analysis about five months of that type of work that went on. 
shut down development of new features for about six months, develop a new build system, essentially, you know, a system that double checked, making sure source code matched what we produced. That was step one in January. Then moved everything to AWS. So didn't move it, really recreated the environment in AWS. Then made everything ephemeral in that environment. So nothing is not in code. And then implemented a multiple build pipeline model. So we don't just build once, we build you know multiple times. And then with C Sharp, we're able to get to deterministic. So I can actually compare the results of each one of those builds. So no one person has access to all the build pipelines. So comparison on the end says, okay, my engineering build matches my development, my development build, which matches my production or staging build. We compare them and say, okay, we don't ship until they compare. So anybody trying to get around our or change our build today, very, very, very difficult. You need collusion among multiple people to do it. So those types of things really got developed in that six months. So a lot of just being exemplary in the security space and really showing people how to do that. So like the build system, we open source to just help others. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but overall, such a fascinating story to learn from in several different ways, right? It's, it is especially the amount of information sharing that you all have done, which is really helpful to the broader community for sure. And as we were talking about earlier before the recording, you know, this incident has done positive things to the industry, which has brought light to this challenge of software supply chain security, which has been around for a while, but now is just uh, much, much more focused in this interconnected world, especially when dependencies and third-party software is being used so, so frequently all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, I think, we focused on making sure our customers got right. That was our first priority. Then the second one was we saw a great collaboration between the research community and a lot of good information there. And public-private partnerships really came to a good place, right? So, you know, CISA, um, sharing things with FBI, sharing things with others to try to just help the community in general. And then supply chain conversations. Yeah, as I said, we turned to the supply chain first because of it wasn't part of our source code system. It was part of our build supply chain. Yeah. But then quickly, our customers started terming it a supply chain because we were in the middle of their environment. So the bigger supply chain. So whether that is a power system or whether that's a food manufacturer, whether that's somewhere else, yeah, you know, we were in the middle of that environment as a component of the system. So that's where supply chain stuff is, you know, a lot of conversations around software build materials. That's great and important. We're a big fan of having that, but also a big fan of expanding that supply chain to include those systems and understanding what the system and the back end really has in it and which of your components has access to what or what data it has access to so you can really assess whether the criticality of that component yeah right so a little bit of both yeah i think it's uh unfortunately the current state of software supply chain security is that there's no standard definition of what it actually means right so we we talk to many people and there's a lot of different definitions of uh, software supply chain and 
you know, security product vendors are not helping in this scenario. (laughs) (laughs) Whether you're doing a dependency, you know, checking or code integrity and provenance or CICD security, everyone calls themselves supply chain security. And I agree with you saying there's, you know, multiple definitions of it or the supply chain problem is a broader problem that encompasses SBOMs and the build and CICD systems and also code integrity. All of those things are components of supply chain. All those things are components of supply chain. And if you look at what your services that you provide, right? I'm providing power. Okay. So if I'm providing power, what makes up my power grid? Okay. What makes up what are the components in there? What are the pieces that are there? Okay. Now what has access to my data? What has access to my systems? What could affect things negatively? Do I have compensating controls for that? Yes or no. All right. Now I have that model first. And then if the NES bomb comes in as far as, okay, well, what is the likely scenario that, you know, one of these components, be it open source or something else that's included in this other component, creates a risk, right? And have I mitigated the risk of that component or is it something I can't really mitigate? So I have to take more stringent actions faster. Right. I just don't want us to focus on simply the supply chain SBOM problem. Yeah. That's going to take a lot of work to do and it it will sidetrack us. Right. And I think a lot of uh, conversations are getting focused on just generating SBOMs for every every application. My suspicion is that that's because the administration recently passed an order requiring, uh, you know, vendors to the federal government provide that. But there's an angle to it in terms of what are you going to do with those S-bombs, right? Or is that even the best thing you can do for securing your uh, dependencies? What's your perspective? I think you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, so it's an important subcomponent, but, you know, I've done a number of meetings with, you know, both vendors as well as consumers of, you know, the technologies. And the consumers say, well, what do I do with this data? Who does it? Who takes care of it? I don't have a team to take care of this. I can't. It takes me six months to acquire a product to start with. How can I add this on top of it? So the infrastructure is not really ready for them to take it on. Now, the value that you have is, say, Log4j. Where is it? Right? Okay. So I should be able to run a report against all my SBOMs and say, oh, Log4j is in these things. So I might not need to do a call or questionnaire to every one of my vendors and say, are you affected by Log4J? So there's some minimal benefit to that, but the benefit does not really reduce the risk of the entire system that I'm looking at, right? So I guess I'd like a combination, right? Great SBOMs, but the other part of an SBOM is that you need to have VEX as part of that, right? Being able to say why I'm vulnerable or not vulnerable to certain components. But there's also an environmental factor, as we talked about with SaaS versus on-premise, right? The environmental factors really do matter when you look at exploitability, right? Something exploitable or not, because of my compensating controls that I have, what should I work on first, right? What should I fix first? So there's absolutely a program around this that needs to be developed. We need to work on implementation. We need to understand what it looks like. So I think in this sense, the technology to be able to generate an SBOM, that's simple, right? It's the other half of it, right? Of you know how you consume it, what you do with it, what actions you take on it, what should I prioritize around the outside? Yeah. So that's what's going to develop over the next few years. You know, if DOD 
you know, does this, you know, in the bill, essentially. So if they go forward, then you'll see other institutions quickly start going towards that way. So it will happen. And I think it's good that it's going to happen. It's just a matter of how do we make it so that it provides the, the value that we're looking for. Right. I was just talking to one of the CISOs recently, and he was in a board meeting, and his board said, hey, we've been hearing about SBOM or supply chain. I don't really know what that means. Uh, And the board said, do something about it, right? So when you have conversations like this, just because a supply software supply chain is such a big ticket item, it's being discussed everywhere, but there's not enough awareness about it. What is the advice that you would give to security leaders who have to do something about supply chain security or really want to do something by themselves? Yeah. So the first half is to understand the supply chain and the bigger picture, right? That's kind of the first step. For the services that I have, if I don't have a list of my mission and business critical services, build that, (laughs) right? Start with that. And then look at what makes up those mission and business critical services. Okay. Once you have that inventory, then start building up for that inventory the specific items that either provide access to an environment that have access to your critical data, understand what those are within that environment, then get the SBOM for those, (laughs) right? Don't just start with the SBOM for your thousands of apps that you use across your entire environment and put the infrastructure together to get everything bring it down to what really matters. And then once you get that done, then you can expand it out. But if you spend all your time getting all the SBOM for every application that you have, that's all you're going to be able to do. That's all you're going to be able to afford to do. That's where you will stop as opposed to being able to reduce risk for the service that you run or your mission and business critical services. I like that approach, which is SBOM. So what I understand is generating SBOMs is non-trivial. It could take a lot of time and energy. So you would rather be better off focusing on understanding what your asset inventory even looks like, understanding what is really important to the business, and then figure out the SBOMs. uh, Then get the SBOMs for them to start with, right? And work with those vendors to understand, hey, All right. So if I don't have compensating controls for an item and it's in my critical system, then guess what? I really do need to understand exactly those things. Right. 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 And then encourage your vendors to share more. Right. But just be careful, right, that you're not encouraging your vendors to share more and then you're just throwing away the data that they provide you as well. So it's not going to help you on the other side. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, be sense. practical with the approach. And the approach is really how do I reduce the level of risk I have for my critical services? Yeah. yeah. Right. So since we are in the very, very early phases of supply chain security, software supply chain security, what's your view on where is it going? How will this look like in the next few years? Yeah. So I think that if US government puts its buying power behind the kind of the SBOM area and the expectation of vendors. We will see that vendors start providing information, right? And it's really up to the vendors to give you that kind of level of detail that people need to assess risk. Some of the other components are more details about how development is done by the vendors, 
how they secure their own infrastructure, how they secure themselves from attack. But I think we'll get more prescriptive and the expectation of what a vendor provides will go up, right? We know we've seen that. We've seen that from many of our you know, large customers that the expectation is going up. Then I think what you'll see is that requirement being shifted over to you know, commercial entities. I think that's going to happen. And I think the tooling around SBOM and supply chain will start getting a little bit better in that it's not just about the SBOM, it's about the overall system and then helping people understand the risks that they face within that system, either being discovered from a dependency perspective or at least being able to kind of give you an appropriate map. And then we'll also see some advancements in that kind of automatic learning, right? And saying, oh, wait a second, this component of the system is going away from normal. It is higher risk because normally it does this, but it popped up and did something that it abnormally does. So I think we'll see that in the next kind of five years. There's a little more AI ML in that space that helps us determine, hey, my supply chain is at higher risk because something weird happened, something different happened. And then we can start looking at saying, why did it happen? So I'm a proponent of a lot of this, and I think it's just going to take a few years for us to get there. But I think we're kind of on the right track. Definitely. It's a great look into the into the future. And honestly, this challenge of uh, bill of materials has been solved in the other industries, like, for example, the auto industry decades ago, right? This was a challenge, although different set of challenges, but okay. it has been a challenge. Uh, yeah. We're just now starting to get to it in the world of software. Yeah, and I think we can learn a lot, right? Because those hardware components also have software. They also have firmware usually, right, associated with them. So just because uh, it's a piece of hardware, it also has yeah vulnerabilities, right? It has vulnerabilities in the way that it's built. Maybe not as prevalent, but you know, definitely there. So I think we can learn more from the hardware that they really the hardware bill of materials as well and their models they just don't change and probably not as you know complex in the number of components as what we see from a piece of software yep makes sense tim we're at time for this and i, I feel like we could have continued this conversation for at least an hour more Thank you for coming on the podcast and, and really sharing this uh, these learnings and your insights. I really appreciate your time for this, Tim. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.